Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 225. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss The Strongest Man in the World, the final film that wraps up our Computer War Tennis Shoes trilogy, which is not what I thought I'd be saying at the beginning of What the February, and yet at the same time, here we are. No, this has been like an extension of what the February. This has been weeks of this. You owe me like a Muppets marathon or something after this. I have no regrets. I have no regrets because we did enjoy Computer War Tennis Shoes. I was very interested to hear that this was a trilogy. And for the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, for Disney to spin off and have a trilogy, I thought, well, this is kind of innovative for its time because now everything in Disney is a trilogy and then a prequel and a sequel. I wish I never found it. But we did and here we are and we are here to discuss Strongest Man in the World. So we liked Computer War Tennis Shoes. We did not like Now You See Him, Now You Don't. I've heard this is better. Is it better? Is it a fitting end to the trilogy? Where does it rank amongst the three? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. They actually just released a new Muse from Hercules mm-hmm. concert. Oh, it's fabulous. You're going to end up with that one, I can guarantee you. Probably. You love you some Hercules. Uh, listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. As the Board of Regents is about to fire Dean Higgins for the financial burdens of Medfield College, Imagine that. he fires Professor Quigley for overspending on the science department, including a cow that he rented as an experiment to help the cow gain weight. As Higgins fires Quigley, the solution that Dexter has been using in the experiment is accidentally dumped into a bowl of cereal that Skyler then dumps back into the box but not before the cow nibbles on some of the cereal. When Dexter eats the cereal the next day, he develops superhuman strength. Uh, meanwhile, the cow has also grown. Upon learning this, the sired, uh, science department shows everything to Higgins in the hopes that it eases the financial woes and saves Quigley's job. Seeing dollar signs, Higgins pitches the idea of the strength formula to the Crumply Crunch cereal company and demonstrates himself what the formula can do. Harry, the CEO's nephew, is secretly a mole for the Crinkle Crunch cereal company, who his aunt Harriet has challenged to a weightlifting contest between Medfield and State, the national champions. In other words... One will eat the cereal with the strength formula, them being Medfield. The state champions will eat the other cereal that does not have the strength formula. And the winner gets notoriety, and it's just great marketing and publicity all around. Um, Needing help 
stealing the formula to benefit Crinkle, Harry hires who else but A.J. Arno and Cookie to aid them. That night, they break into the school and are chased by security before they could find the formula. Arno and Cookie kidnap Skylar and bring him to Chinatown, where he is hypnotized into telling them how to make the formula. However, he tells them how to make his formula, not Dexter's, because he did not know that Dexter's formula had been added uh, to his mix. So when Crinkle tries to make it, the chemical in the formula does not work. Harry tells Crinkle the formula was a fluke and tells Crinkle that if State eats their cereal on live television before the match, that it's great publicity because if it didn't work for them, it won't work for Medfield. At the event, each team eats their cereal and Dexter sees that the formula is not working and because he tastes that it doesn't have the acidicness that it did the or the acidity that it did the first time he ate it he knew that his formula was missing so he leaves to retrieve it harry meanwhile has called arno to interfere with dexter while medfield is embarrassed on live television as Dexter arrives in the lab at the school, so does Arno and his goons. So Dexter drinks the formula, regains his strength, and fights them off. He also sees Harry arrive and identifies him as the mole. Dexter arrives on site at the television studio, lifts over 1,100 pounds to secure the victory for Medfield College. It is amazing to me that it took this long to fire Dean Higgins. We had just talked about this last week, that he continues to squander money year after year. Medfield never seems to get themselves dug out of the hole that he continues to put them in. We could never figure out where the money goes. So it only took three films over the course of six years, and now his ass is on the line. This might be my favorite of the bunch simply because he finally got called out. Although I will give them credit because they did set that up in Now You See Him, Now You Don't, Dexter's flavor of the month, the girl. Right. That's not really a love interest, but they just stuck a girl in there because they felt like they had to. Gee, thanks for the bone, fellas. Anyway, um... She does point out that the 50 grand that they won for the invisibility, which went nowhere and garnered no publicity, right? Uh, would just wipe them clean of the mortgage payment. And then next year they would have to do this all over again. So I'm surprised that you didn't call Higgins out in any of the other films for mismanaging, but now you actually had the setup of like, well, we just made the one payment. We covered it. We got ourselves out of that hole, and now we have to do it again. Yeah, and and as Dexter says, I'll figure it out next year, but the problem being now that Dexter is a senior, so there is no next year. And I think that's Uh that's why they had this idea that they were going to sell this strength formula because they could make so much money that they wouldn't have to rely on Dexter anymore, the student who continues to trip and fall into success to save this university. So... I guess they set it up and they kind of paid it off well. We are getting a little bit ahead, though, because I do want to talk about these opening credits. It's funny. Now you see him, now you don't, I feel like is just almost a separate entity because it's so different. They did those opening credits just over the scene of Higgins looking for the bug in the office. Here, 
the opening credits sort of revert back, revert back more in line with computer wore tennis shoes because they animated them. I don't know how Ron Miller didn't get the pantsuit off of him because this little animated Dexter, I guess it's supposed to be, looks so much like Dennis the Menace without the freckles. He's he's basically identical. Yeah, it's it's pretty close. Um, but another catchy catchy bop for the opening credits. But I was just surprised that um, they went that route again. In reviewing Computer War tennis shoes, and then now you see him, now you don't. In my mind. After watching this, now you see him. Now you don't. Feels like a made-for-TV movie. Like it was like a, a something they shot for the wonderful world of Disney. Like Computer War tennis shoes and the Strongest Man in the World feel like movies that were released in a theater. Whereas now you see him. Now you don't. Kind of feels like an afterthought, which is weird because it's the middle film. I feel like this feels like more of a continuation of computer war tennis shoes because it actually does acknowledge some of the things that were set up. Yeah. And Uh, especially if you eliminate the idea of that $50,000 mortgage payment, this would have been a more natural continuation after Dexter got them out of the hole the first time. Yes. And he was terrific when he did that. Have you noticed that that is, that is the word of choice for Dexter in this entire series. Yeah. You could turn this into a drinking game every time Dexter says, terrific! I It, it only dawned on me when we watched the third film. He, it, he says it constantly. He really does. I don't know if that's like a Kurt Russell thing where he kind of ad-libbed it. It's definitely the way he delivers it, and that's why it stands out, but... They make Dexter say the word terrific a lot. I imagine that that is what got him cast, is that delivery. It's boyish, right? It's very Richie Cunningham. It is. Very much of the time. I feel like that's what landed him this role. And and they just took that and, and kept running. Yeah. So, Higgins... He's on the line. He has the meeting with the representative from the Board of Regents. And then he goes into the lab where it's the Richard Schuyler Creative Lab Month or whatever it was that was on that sign that they had banner hung up in the in the lab. Um, and they're all working on this experiment. Frankly, he comes in. There's chaos because he fires Higgins. Which makes sense. Uh, Quigley. Uh, Quigley, sorry. He fires Quigley, which makes sense because he's trying to save himself. And if Quigley is overspending, then you're going to cut your financial woes at the top, right? And if he identifies Quigley as the reason, and it would appear that he did, that makes sense. The, the beaker that they're making the solution into gets dumped into the bowl of cereal because they just bump into the table. This is the most reasonable incident so far. (laughs) It doesn't involve floods. It doesn't involve electrocution. It doesn't involve anything more than somebody bumped into something and something fell off a table into something else. It it is the most reasonable, realistic setup that we have seen so far. Yeah. 
props on that but I guess they kind of wanted to oversimplify it because oh my gosh we got a cow in the classroom we put a cow indoors this very much reminded me of Gus with them dragging the poor mule through the hotel yeah the the cow that stood on Higgins foot and yet nobody could figure out why Higgins was in so much pain. Yeah, nobody bothered to look down. I mean, I get it. They they did stage it properly because you wouldn't necessarily be able to see that behind a counter, but that moment just drags on. Although I will say, I'm glad this freaking guy get what's he gets what's coming to him because it's just completely unfounded that when all they have done, especially Dexter in the two films prior to make this school money, he puts the responsibility back on the science department of you better come up with something so that's going to make this school money. No. How about you handle the budget because these kids are paying you to get their education? Yeah. What I'm really surprised that they didn't do was lean into the idea of Higgins misspending everything because he's got this snazzy new car which they go to great lengths to set up that he's polishing it and granted they're gonna pay that off much later on because obviously this car is going to get destroyed you know it I'm not spoiling anything yeah he loves the car he's obsessive over it so you know that this thing is going to get totaled by the end of this film you've seen it in a zillion movies but it just would have been a really good plot point where instead of since you don't acknowledge the mortgage being paid off in the last film and having to start at zero again it would have been a lot more interesting if they started blaming Higgins for his own spending and maybe taking some off the top and maybe sort of villainizing him a little bit yeah I think there was maybe a missed opportunity there but I also think that Higgins is a foil to Dexter and to really that entire science department, because I can't even say to Quigley, because Quigley's gone in the second film. We never see him. They right. never speak of him. So he's really a foil to Dexter in the science department. But he's never really the bad guy, just because he's he's a bumbling fool. That's what he is. So I think it may have been a little bit of a harsh turn to do it, but I still think that you could have somehow done it. And I do think that you're right. There was a bit of a missed opportunity with that. What I will say, though, is that I like that this didn't become a case of Medfield versus state again. I mean, it does once you bring in the cereal companies, but I'm just glad it wasn't Higgins versus Collingsworth, Collingsgood. I forget what his name yeah. is. It They didn't completely re- retread that. No, but what they do retread is, and, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think that this is the time and place to bring it up. They do retread the idea that nobody takes Medfield seriously. Because when when Quigley, or sorry, when Higgins, I don't know why I keep getting them crossed. When Higgins does go to the cereal company with the strength formula, they go, oh, you're that funny little man from that little school upstate. Yeah, the little school that's had that that's won the state competition in trivia on live television, where they had a boy genius. Yes, who, was who also news. went invisible and then created invisibility. It defies logic and defies reason that Medfield College is still not 
like getting their accolades after all of this. The car chase through California alone should have been enough for people to recognize the Medfield name, even though it is negative attention. So maybe that, I guess that does classify it as the silly little school. But that's your takeaway. That's what you remember after Boy Genius and Invisibility. It's just odd that they keep erasing the past. They did it in the second movie. They do it again here. But but here they do it in a really weird way because they're continuing the story to the point you made. This of, of the two sequels feels like the most natural continuation. Yet we're still erasing things from the first two films kind of irrationally. Well, I think that that sort of goes back to the idea, and I can't take credit for this idea. Um, I've been listening to Pod Meets World obsessively, um, and a big point of contention for a lot of people with Boy Meets World is the continuity and how many characters just disappeared and some of them came back. Um, But what they've made a point of saying on that podcast is that This was filmed, much like these films, in a time before streaming when things were not bingeable. But especially with a film and not a TV series that gets picked up for syndication, a film, you just think it's going to have the theatrical release. And even back then in the 70s, Disney didn't have the VHS catalog. No one did. There was no such thing. There was no such thing. So these films were released and you went to see them and then that was it. Nobody was sitting there comparing one back to back if you even remembered something that might have happened. Nobody was really calling out continuity back then. Fair enough. It's still odd, but fair enough. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the formula as it starts to take effect. Um, I want to talk about, before we even talk about Dexter, I want to talk about Brutus. I want to talk about Skylar's dog, Brutus. Yes. I love this addition. He's a fun little dog. He's a fun little character. And I love the setup as they introduce him. He's getting chased by the larger dog. And, you know, Skylar says to him, one day you're going to have to defend yourself against this big dog, Brutus. And Brutus eats the cereal after Dexter eats it and says, I don't think I want your cereal anymore, Skylar. And he gives it to Brutus because he doesn't want to just throw it away. I love the scene with Brutus when he starts to chase the other dog. He knocks the door off the hinge. And this is happening, like you've seen Dexter a little bit with his strength. And we'll talk about that in a second. But to me, this is where the full effect of the formula, this is the first time that you see it, and I kind of like that we saw it with Brutus first. Right, because when you realize that something has gone awry, it's because they get the phone call about the cow producing so much milk, which I also yeah. like. That's a great little quick beat, but they get in, get out very fast. You didn't need to spend a lot of time with it. This was a really good introduction. I also like that we finally get to see the living situation because we've seen Dexter's house. We know it's off campus housing. We know that he has roommates, but I like that we actually get a look at him and Skylar as roommates and see a little bit more of this house. I I actually wish we would have spent more time there. Um, I also like how um, 
Dexter really starts to figure out that he's got super strength because yes. at first it happens with you know he realizes that the cereal tastes funny he breaks a shoelace trying to tie the shoe um and then while they're walking to class like the entire class all 20 kids is like walking yeah. together down they all the live together uh he bends the light post that's a really great sight gag it's outstanding i love that he breaks everything like inadvertently that he's breaking everything, the light post being my absolute favorite part. I wish they had done more. I wish it was almost as comical, like if they had them stop at a grocery store and wreaked havoc in there. Um, you know, that's a little bit of a callback to to Gus. In my mind, um, I'm sort of ripping off the idea, but just something like that where he actually starts becoming destructive. Yeah, the whole victim of circumstance thing. Yes. I mean, they do sort of do it once they get to campus, um, which apparently the Walt Disney Studios had a basketball court, um, where he totally just breaks the hoop and it, it comes apart entirely. Even after it hits the ground, it continues to fall apart. That's a really great sight gag. But that's really all we get as far as Dexter. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? So more on that in a minute. Um, there's also, I want to I wanna make mention, there's a line in there, I think as they're walking to class, where they're talking about having to save Quigley, and they're like, well, Quigley's been fired a bunch of times, and we always get him back. I'm paraphrasing. When? We're now three films in, and you're talking about Quigley being fired multiple times. We've never seen it, and it's never been alluded to. When he was the computer teacher, it was more budgetary where he was on thin ice. They were cutting the funding for his program. So technically... It wasn't him getting fired. It was just, well, I, I mean, I guess you could sort of reach the conclusion that if the program gets cut, that he would go along with it. However, there's obviously other avenues for him to teach because now he's a, he's a chemistry teacher. It, it's just odd that they would call back to something that apparently has happened multiple times. And that seems like that would be, oh, I don't know, important for the character important for the plot, and we've never seen it. It just doesn't make any sort of sense to me. I mean, I still like, though, that these kids are willing to back Quigley just because oh, they yeah. like him so much. That was something that I liked about computer or tennis shoes. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get into Higgins' office, because this is one of the last times that we see Dexter for a while. Higgins is uh, reprimanding a student for eating in class, a lot. This is uncalled for and utterly ridiculous. What we should see now is Higgins actually giving a hoot and stressing about where he's going to come up with this money. Yeah. And instead, you've got candy bars and crinkly papers. And, I mean, they, they do it to set up the sight gag, right? Where... Dexter comes in, the whole class comes in, and they're trying to show that he's got superhuman strength. And the best part about the scene is when they walk in, I think Skylar says to Higgins, 
but Dean Higgins, something's happened to Dexter. And Higgins goes, <laughs> something's always happening to Dexter. It That was the best line in the scene, and it was the most self-aware that the movie had been. It's the most self-aware that they've been in the three films that they've shot. Yes, that was a callback to the other two films that was worth doing. So Dexter goes to show off the superhuman strength, and he picks up the chair that this uh, other student is sitting in. Elmer. Elmer. And the jelly beans start falling out of his pocket. Why, though? Because I think they wanted to show that Dexter could lift. There's no nice way to say it. They were trying to show that he had superhuman strength and he could lift something that was not very light. No, I'm talking about the jelly beans. Well, like, was that was that supposed to be a play for comedy? Well, because they talked about the jelly beans earlier. They mentioned it earlier, and the kid is, like, defending, well, sometimes I just get a little hungry, and then meanwhile he's walking around with a pocket full of jelly beans that just fall all over the floor. At least you want to talk about hearkening back to something that you said earlier, that you saw earlier. At least they're paying off on something that they said. Because the other thing is, I think you're trying to feel bad for this Elmer and kind of feel like maybe Higgins is bullying him a little bit. But then as soon as he's turned backwards he starts spilling food all over the place so it's like well no you you are guilty of doing all of these things it just seems like it's weak sauce that he would be brought to the dean of the university yes. like if this was high school and he goes to the principal's office for eating in class we weren't allowed to eat in class in high school i mean we weren't really allowed to do it in college either but like you wouldn't have been sent to the dean over it like yeah. if this were high school makes sense going to the dean of a college it's a little weak yeah, although, I mean, I'll buy it in this case because it's not like Higgins is spending his time doing anything else of importance. Right, but as soon as they tell Higgins that we've developed this and it was after Dexter ate this cereal, then the wheels start turning in Higgins' head and he gets the secretary on the phone and he says, get me in touch with the cereal company. He was like, because if this does exactly what I think it can do, we're never going to have to worry about finances again. I actually really like the jump that they make here yes. to let's market this instead of, okay, can we replicate this formula? Let's get the press here. Let's shine the spotlight on the Medfield students. No, like Higgins is actually thinking big here. And long term, he's learned something. Right. And this is where you, this is where Dexter. It, it almost seems like Dexter's story ends, and this becomes a very Higgins-centric film. Which I was okay with, and now you see him, now you don't, because Dexter had a hand in it when the spotlight did shift over to Higgins in the golf game. But you needed something like that here, where Dexter and Skyler are backing him. Instead, Dexter disappears for, I would say half hour i i was gonna say at least a third of the film probably more like half and even it does shift to skylar a little bit but like not enough no it makes sense to me though that higgins would go and make himself the subject of this experiment right for because sure let's live in a world where people remember dexter riley no one's going to be that impressed that he would have superhuman strength because he's already been invisible. He's already been a superhuman computer. But you take Higgins, 
who, you know, he, he could barely lift a paperweight. You make him the subject of the experiment to show what the solution can do. I think it makes sense. I think it made for great visuals. I think there were really good, there were some fun visual effects in this scene when he's in the boardroom at the cereal company. I mm-hmm. think the problem is we do way too much. Yes. Like, he picks up the dumbbell. Okay, that makes sense. He karate chops the the very long boardroom table in half. Okay, that would be like the crescendo. Yeah, but get out of it then. But then it exactly. doesn't end. Uh, he starts ripping the walls apart, and he, at one point, like, catapults up onto the chandelier, and something that... I had to call to attention. It is now the second time in a film focused on Medfield College that we have heard the man on the flying trapeze played because they did the (laughs) same gag in the absent-minded professor when they're at the dance. Yes. So they retread that entire thing here in the boardroom. Um. I totally agree. This goes on for way too long, even though the trapeze POV shots are really fun where they put the camera upside down as if it's Higgins point of view. Um, That was cool, but way too long. They should have gotten out of it before he completely destroyed the entire boardroom. Although it is funny that um, we do get a new character introduced whom everyone calls Aunt Harriet. She is only one person's aunt, but she's everybody's Aunt Harriet. She is Eve Arden, who is probably most known for her role as the principal in Greece. Uh, but I love her here. I just love her delivery of the lines, even though she rolls her R's every time she talks about the serial. Um And I just love how she's in control of the room where everyone sort of follows her lead. And as outlandish as everything that Higgins is doing is, she'll applaud and the rest of the boardroom will follow suit. Um, So it does drag on quite a bit, but it is lightened with that comedy. Um, But I totally buy this from Higgins, too, that he would be the one to perform the experiment. And he would, you know, he walks in chest puffed out. Oh, I broke out my my uniform from my gym days. Like this is totally in character for him. And that's also where the scene dragging on. I don't forgive it, but I will buy it from him because he's going to want all the attention. I also think it makes sense that they're going to do this weightlifting contest. The fact that it's the one cereal company against the next to become the number one cereal in the country. The fact that it's going to be Medfield, who nobody takes seriously, versus State, who are the national champions. So we're going to do Medfield and State again. And the publicity, and we're going to show them, and look at what our cereal can do. I think the setup is dynamite. I think it actually makes a ton of sense for what they're trying to do here. I wish, though, and I know I said earlier that I'm glad this wasn't a case of Medfield versus State again, but I feel like it almost would have been more natural to be like, oh, Dexter has superhuman strength. Let's televise this sporting event that's already happening against State College and get sponsorship. Instead, it was just, oh, the formula fell on this serial we're going to go right to this serial and see if they want to make this into a thing. 
I just feel like it would have flowed a little bit better if the competition was already happening and then Higgins started thinking big as far as let's get a sponsor on this instead of these cereal companies already being rivals and having a mole. Yeah, Dick Van Patten, he's back. We just had him in Gus. Now he's back. Right. Uh, and so villainy, right? He's sitting there rolling that cigar and he's got his eyes all wide when they're like, I w- there couldn't possibly be a mole in the room. And if there is, I wonder which one of you it is. And like the camera pans past him and then right back. And he's just, he's basically, if he had a monocle, like there's nothing <laughs> else, that he, there's nothing else missing other than the monocle. You're like a little mustache to twirl. But it, it would have been more than enough that he wanted to start the meeting before Harriet got there. Yeah, so he's the mole for the other cereal company and calls... Like, why? And Because, because. And then he calls Arno and Cookie. Cookie's back. It's not chili, it's Cookie again. Uh, I got nothing for you there. What I would have bought also, though, is that because Higgins is finally trying to save his own skin, if he was the one who sought out Arno... And just kept like, and we didn't need a mole. Yeah, Yeah. kept dipping his toe into the water. Yeah, but then if the problem is, if they do that, now you're kind of rooting against Medfield because now Med Medfield they're supposed to be the underdogs. I mean, they're steroid enhanced at this point. Let's call it what it is. But like, you're still supposed to root for them, even though they're kind of cheating. Right. Then hire Arno as a mole. I just don't think it would have worked. I don't think you could have rooted for them. No, you're right. But I mean, I would have bought that from Higgins where all of a sudden he cares enough about his own job, not about the school that he's squandered all their money where he's like, "Uh oh, I need to team up with the bad guys to fix this. If it were up to me and I could change or alter the course of time, I would have eliminated now you see me now you see him now you don't. I would have slid this movie in as the second film. And for the third film, because Dexter's basically gone at this point. We see him again at the end of the movie, but Dexter's gone, right? I would have rather them done a spinoff with Arno and Cookie. And done sort of like, even though the second film wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination, done what they did with the Apple Dumpling Gang. I wish that we would have just had a spin-off with those two as the third film because they got a lot of screen time together in this film. Yes. Like more so than I think we had seen them in the previous two. And they're so good together. They have some of some of the best physical comedy and some of the best dialogue in the movie. That's the thing, right? Is that Cesar Romero didn't get to do a lot of physical comedy and there's a big payoff for that in this film I also really like Cookie has one of the best self-aware lines in in this film where he says every time we get involved with the Medfield kids we end up in jail true yeah but I thought the two of them together were great they were the the setup though of the scaffolding over the cement though was extremely heavy-handed like what's gonna happen yeah, but you know, it's it's a Ron Miller family film from the mid seventies. They're yeah. not gonna be subtle and you know they're gonna they're gonna pay off on it for the visual gag. What was very impressive though was that I mean, I think they actually did this on the side of the Disney building. 
it was impressed. Whether it was or wasn't, if it's not, then you fooled us, and the editing and the set design was outstanding. But if they did pull it off, yeah, to get Cesar Romero up there to do something like that. I don't think that they filmed it really at that height. I think that that is the cheat. But the way that the Disney buildings are painted, I mean, you you kind of they they do it to make it look like it's the top floor, but it's really not because I think the those buildings are four floors. So they're shooting maybe at the third and they're trying to make it look like it's the tippy top. But regardless, um, the way they matched it is incredible. I don't think they put Cesar Romero up there, but I think for the most part, the wider shots, it was shot up against the building. And they did shoot it in such a way where those buildings look a lot taller than they actually are. For sure. So well done there. Well, something that I didn't think was so well done, though, Skylar. Oh, God. He's so trusting, yeah. too trusting yeah, I knew you of were Arno. Here. Yep. But this is one of Arno's best moments. He actually kidnaps Skylar's dog to lure Skylar to them and plays it off like, yeah, we're your buddy. We got you. Hey, we'll take you home. It's one of his best moments. He's so slimy and he does it so effortlessly. He sets up his own save the cat moment. I, it's brilliant. I buy it. I buy it. It's like, honestly, as we sit here through three films, I think AJ Arno is the best character in this series. And I would go so far to say that he is one of the most forgotten about and underappreciated characters in Disney history. I would love to see, and I mean, we'd really have to comb through and look. I would love to see if there was like a name on a building somewhere and they did a hat tip in the parks. That would be pretty incredible. Um, But what absolutely destroys this moment is Skylar's line of, gee, Mr. Arno, I don't care what anyone says about you. If you saved an animal, you're okay by me. Forget the fact that he kidnapped your best friend in the first one. You almost wrecked your car. He almost killed you with his invisible car. And he shot his gun at Yes. In two films. In two films. But you're all right by him. Okay, Skylar. I mean, look, we all love dogs. So you do get a pass if you were kind to an animal. But I hate that it just erases everything that Arno has not only done to Dexter, but to Skylar personally well what is the one consistent thing with these sequels we just no consistency no there is a consistent it's we erase everything that happened before and we pretend like it never happened that's what i'm saying the consistency is in consistency i also love that everybody just assumes even though they're right i love that everybody just assumes that skylar was kidnapped because he went to go find the dog and he didn't come back but the cops ignore the kidnapping again that's what they did in computer wore tennis shoes when they're sitting there listening to the audio going, hmm, where have I heard those numbers before? Yeah. AJ, hmm. Yeah. But because the kids had to take the matters into their own hands because the cops of Medfield don't do anything. You don't even have campus security that's on this? Come on. So they take Skylar to Chinatown where oh, God. the police chief is is attending a a ceremony thrown by um, the sons of um, oh so, uh, what was it? It was um, 
Is it the Chinese Businessmen Association? Yes. Something like that. The Sons just... of Confucius is what they were called. That's what the pin says on his on his shirt. Yes. And then there's signage that says the Chinese Businessmen Association. Just completely generic. So the one who's dishonest in the bunch is hired by Arno and Cookie to take Skylar. They use acupuncture therapy and then they hypnotize him into giving them the formula for the solution, right? And they're like, well, wait a minute. As soon as we take him out of hypnosis, what's going to stop him from ratting us out? And they hypnotize him into just going straight home, getting home to Brutus. Taking the first car he sees. Take the first car he sees, and you will not remember that any of this happens. The first car he sees is a police car. You so knew. He, so you, he knew. Sti- you know what, though? I don't care if I knew. It pays off. It does. But that whole scene absolutely does not hold up. First of all, it doesn't feel like it even fits in that film. Like, I'll buy that Arno and Cookie have, they need an elaborate scheme because they couldn't get it done themselves. But I just feel like this is so far left field. It comes out of nowhere. Um... I, I think it is safe to say it is appropriation at this point. It, it's just not a good scene. It doesn't hold up. And I think that the parts of this final scene, parts of the end of this film are a little bit watered down. We get to the weightlifting competition, right? We know that Medfield does not have the formula. Right. And... So they set it up where you have, for a lack of better term, the weaklings from Medfield up against guys from state who have receding hairlines, but they're college students. The failure, I think, drags on a little too long. I know that they were really trying to play up on physical comedy. The one student from Medfield, his arms stretch. The other one loses control of the weights. Yeah. They're going for the silly, but that is another thing that they have kind of consistently done in this series. But I, I, it, it was kind of a hallmark of those Ron Miller produced mid seventies live action Disney films where they would just have these pace killing scenes, and this is no different. This falls victim to it as well. It is very problematic especially because of what they try and cut up against it i'm going to put a pin in that though and get back to it because i want to address something that you said i didn't think that these were actually state students i thought that these were more of arno's guys that they put in place for state to keep the competition rigged no these are supposed to be national champion weightlifting students I thought there was a throwaway line uh, from the the crispy, crispy Kringle guy that tells Arno he better have something planned so that they still win. That's to that's that's when he goes to Medfield to intercept Dexter. When he says you better put guys in place, that's why he has a whole team with yes. him. Okay, you are right. I thought he also hired like pro weightlifters to put up as the competition um so here's where it gets very problematic for me um yes they are playing for the physical comedy i actually really 
liked the part where um, the one Medfield competitor's arm stretched out. Yeah. It's a great sight gag, really, really well done. But you basically humiliate Medfield, and yet somehow, much like in the trivia game in Computer War Tennis Shoes, the weightlifting team puts up 350 pounds. Where? How with these guys? They should have had zero points on the board or maybe 100 pounds because I'm not convinced that any of the rest of this team was going to be able to lift anything. I also despise the line where they say to Higgins, either they say to Higgins, you've never had a winner or Higgins himself says, I've never had a winner. I think somebody says, Higgins, you've never had a winner. Well, what about the scholastic competition in the yes. first film? What about the grant money that they won in the second film? Uh, you've had two winners in two straight films. Well, that's also my bigger point of where this is problematic. So I'm going to remove my pin now. Um, in that scholastic competition, they were on the Medfield campus filming. So you can kind of assume that that's what's happening now. And instead, no, Dexter needs to go, quote unquote, back to campus to get his formula once they realize that it was his that spilled into the cereal. Right. Why do we need to do that? So he can drive Higgins' car. First of all, Dexter has always had a car in every single one of these films. So I don't buy that he doesn't have one. And second of all... This should be a short walk to go grab it from the other building. If they're on campus. I don't know that they are. We don't know that they are. It's not confirmed, but you were the last time. So this whole thing is in service of cutting this competition with these scenes of Dexter driving at first very slow until on his way back, once he gets the formula, he dumps it into the gas tank. Which was a great gag. Yeah. I love that he did that. I wish we would have had more time with him and Arno, though. Because yes. you've had two films of Dexter and Arno. This is the third film. It's the last film for both of these characters. There should have been a hell of a crescendo yeah. with Dexter and Arno. And they have hardly any screen time together. I mean, I do like the sight gag of, uh, you know, Dexter gets his vial and, and they surround him. So he chugs half of it. And then all of Arno's guys pile up on top of him. And, and once he, you know, once the formula kicks in, he just throws them off. But like, this is where you could have also had one of those, I don't know my own strength, funny, destructive scenes. Right. Um, and Dexter makes it back and he drinks the rest of the formula and he lifts over 1,100 pounds and Medfield wins by one point. Fine. They get the money. Medfield is now saved forever because you are going to put uh, performance-enhancing drugs into cereal for the uh, American public to consume. But they're only temporary. But then you can buy more cereal, which actually is like... That was actually very funny. That was like the most like sensible thing that you would have heard in that boardroom. And it's like, well, yeah, of course you all figured that one out. They just didn't do a good enough job of setting up the idea that it does wear off over time. Because we don't know how long. Like, we, we know that... Well, we don't really know because we don't see Dexter for most of this film. The last time we saw him, he's lifting up two people in Higgins' office. Yep. And then he's gone. So we don't actually know that it wore off. 
Well, they know it wears off because they say it wears off, but they say we don't know how long it lasts. And I guess you would also get that from Brutus. Okay, fine, but they should have just incorporated something so that we know how much you consume. Like if you consume more, it lasts longer, something like that. And that also would have been a good place to stick that would be when he has the final showdown with Arno. Because maybe, you know, he needed so much of it to fend off the guys if they had drawn that out a little bit longer instead of dragging on the stupid competition. Then, oh, no, what happens when he really needs to perform and you've only got a little bit left? Right. Uh, You have anything else or are we on to final thoughts? Uh, The only other thing I wanted to mention to, to piggyback on what you said of there should have been such a a bigger showdown between Arno and Dexter because this was the last time Dexter should have also been so much more shocked to see Arno. He's just like AJ Arno. Like I recognize you. You don't even know that this man has been busted out of jail again. Right. You thought you were done with him. We needed a way bigger reaction. And instead it's like terrific. Yeah. Well, Arno's back. That's terrific guys. Um, Okay, final thoughts on the strongest man in the world. Um, as much as I enjoyed Cesar Romero having a bigger part in this film, I mean, not to say that A.J. Arno's not a big part. It certainly is. He's been our villain for two films running, three now. Um, as much as we got to see him do more physical work, he was probably my favorite part of this film which I think is the weakest in the bunch because you had two to get it right and two to tie up all the loose ends in this one and instead you're calling back to things that aren't make sense when you could have actually tied it all together and I just see a lot more places for potential story in this one and things that they could have done um, not only to improve on the sequels but to just make them more cohesive so you would rank them in order one two and three in terms of the films as far as how much i enjoy them and how good i think they are it would be three two one one being the best what i wish they had done i think to make it more cohesive was computer or tennis shoes then strongest man in the world and then end on now you see him, now you don't. Because to me, invisibility is the biggest thing that they accomplished. Right. And something that is not going to wear off. And that would have been better for Dexter's senior project to launch his career path. Especially because one of the biggest points of contention that I had was that this is his biggest discovery. And there's no fanfare over it. It's just, wow, we have enough money to pay off the mortgage. And not, whoa, Dexter made this incredible discovery. Because he discovered it. Not something happened to him as a fluke. But my question is, so you would rank the third film the third out of three. In this other is words, my least favorite. Okay. Yeah. Um, to me, this is Smokey and the Bandit 3, where you kind of go in with a certain idea of what the movie is going to be based on the last two that you saw and the characters that you've gotten to know, and it ends up getting flipped on its head. The difference being that Dexter is hardly in this film, Burt Reynolds, I don't think, is in Smokey and the Bandit 3 at all. I, he may have had a quick cameo, but like the 
Snowman plays the bandit in the third film. But you kind of go in with one thing in mind and you get thrown for a loop. I think that the setup is great in this film. I think that it is the most realistic setup that we have had over the course of three films. Is it better than the second? It's marginally better than the second. And I'm saying, like, just barely. And I think that the setup and the realism of it is what just puts it a hair ahead for me. So I would say 1-3-2. But I wish that they would have done 1-3-2 as the order. I think that that makes the most sense. I'm glad that we got it done. I'm glad that we talked about what it seems like is one of the first trilogies in the history of Disney. It's interesting that it came out of this. Um, it it was kind of just fun to live in Medfield for a while, but I'm no longer interested in going to Medfield College for a considerable amount of time. I just wish that there was a crossover with the absent-minded professor in this world. It would have been fun, but alas... We don't have it. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about The Strongest Man in the World and about the Computer War Tennis Shoes Trilogy. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was Perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. And listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code monoreal10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's services and all of her products. It is online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. I hate to be a downer and start news off with some sad news, but unfortunately, we have to. Raleigh Crump, legendary Disney Imagineer, has passed away. Very sad. I've, I, I'm kind of getting like tired of reporting that these Disney legends have been passing away <laughs> because it's unfortunately been back-to-back weeks that we've been talking about this. Um, but very sad. A lot of people, if you didn't know who he was, got to know him by watching him in the Imagineering story. Um, and and he was the one that I think you could see how much he missed Walt Disney. I, I go so far as to say perhaps of the people that they interviewed, he missed him the most. Uh 
I mean, listen, a great long life. Uh, seemed like he was pretty spry, really, through most of his life. It was great to see that he was still involved with Disney and doing interviews, but it doesn't change the fact that sad news nonetheless. No, and I mean, it, if there's anything to sort of soften it, I believe he passed in his home. Um, I don't know if he was sick or anything like that, but, you know, you just kind of hope that it happened in his sleep and it was pretty quick and painless because what a great guy. He just clearly loved what he did so much, loved Walt. Uh, I was pretty bummed out yesterday when I found that out. He let's, was one of the greats. Let's talk about some Oscar stuff. Uh Got a lot of news coming out of there. Yeah, got a lot of news coming out of there. Surprising to no one, Wakanda Forever won the Oscar for Best Costume Design. We had talked about that with Ricardo when we had been reviewing and discussing Wakanda Forever. And and I posed the question to him, is it harder to design period pieces or fantastical? And does sometimes the period pieces have an unfair advantage? I'm glad in this case that the costume department got their due. Absolutely. Uh, yes, Ruthie Carter won the Oscar for Best Costume. Um, certainly not a surprise to us because the Wakanda costumes, the Tolokan costumes, everything was just so incredible. And I'm so happy uh, that it got recognized. Um, another surprise to no one, Avatar The Way of Water won Best Visual Effects. I mean, come on. And it was it deserved it. The visual effects were good, and, and Avatar was actually a really good film. Yeah, and I mean, every time that James Cameron does one of these, it's completely groundbreaking. Let's yeah. talk about, well, there, there's two more, probably the biggest things to come out of the Oscars. Um, you know, we're sitting here saying that uh, for costuming, we're very glad that Wakanda was recognized because they will do that. And acknowledge an MCU film in a category like costuming, but they still won't do it for a performance. I am, of course, talking about the biggest snub of the night. Angela Bassett did not win for Best Supporting Actress. Um, I was floored. Honestly, my, my jaw hit the floor. I had said it when we reviewed Wakanda Forever that it was hers to lose at yep. that point because she got... It, she swept this category at every single major award show, the SAG Awards, the Golden Globes. And I really thought, OK, we're going to do it. The The Marvel films are going to get the recognition that they deserve. This performance is going to get the recognition that it deserves. I was so ready for it. Um, and I was shocked when they announced Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, I'm not saying that Jamie Lee Curtis didn't deserve an Oscar. however. I kind of feel like it's twofold. Number one, the Academy did not want to acknowledge a comic book film. And number two, it almost felt like they were giving this to Jamie Lee Curtis as more of a lifetime achievement award and not for this performance specifically. So here's the thing. You can't say that the Academy won't recognize comic book films because Heath Ledger won as the Joker in The Dark Knight. Posthumously, though. Yeah, and I think that part of the reason why he won is because of the method acting and because he died so shockingly, and I think that because of the way that he put himself into that role, there are some people that believe that that perhaps may have led to everything that happened after the fact. Well, I'm certainly glad that Angela Bassett didn't have to die to win. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, like, 
it, she's an incredibly talented actress, and she's had an incredible storied career. So that's somebody with the legendary st- status that they have. You want them to win an Academy Award. Like, she does deserve an Academy Award. But you're right. It seems like they gave... And, and it's not a shot at her performance at all. But Angela Bassett was just so good that I felt the same way. I was like, I feel like they threw her one because at this point in her career, this being Jamie Lee Curtis, how many more Oscars is she going to be up for? Right. Angela Bassett's already won one. So now it's turning into like a participation trophy to me is, which like, I hate to say it is kind of what the lifetime achievement award is. It's like, Oh, you never won. Well, here you go. Here's a gift. That's what I'm saying. Give her one of those. And I mean, I'm, uh, I agree with you. I'm not saying that Jamie Lee Curtis is not a good actress. She is. But when you consider the body of work and you put them up against each other, Angela Bassett has still done more, more meaningful role. And I mean, I love Halloween. They keep making them. I keep seeing them. Like I'm, I'm not hating on the franchise, and I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying that horror is not a reputable medium. But when you put the two bodies of work up against each other, Angela Bassett has just done more meaningful roles. So if you're gonna do a lifetime achievement and, and base it off of that, it should have gone to her in that regard too. I also don't take into account anymore. Oh. But the Golden Globes, oh, but the Critics' Choice, oh, but the, oh, but the, oh, but the, because this happens every year, and people go, oh, well, they swept at this, so they have to win here. No, more times than not, when you sweep at the other awards, you don't win jack diddly nothing at the Academy Awards. And now that you can gamble on everything on an app on the phone, and I'm pretty sure that you were able to wager on the Academy Awards, how much of that is smoke and mirrors because they're trying to adjust the odds. I, I, I hate to think like that, but I think like that. Now they want WWE to be something that you can gamble on. You want to gamble on something that is literally scripted. Aye. Talk about talk about the odds favoring the house. Like, I, I just don't buy into it. Everybody thought that Austin Butler, there was no way he was going to lose Brendan Fraser was incredible in the whale. I think the two of them, they were neck and neck. They more split awards season, I think, than Angela Bassett, because you're right, she ran the table. But this whole, oh, but they won it all, that that doesn't mean anything at the Academy Awards. It's a, But Kiwi Kwan, he swept the category. He was supporting actor, swept everything. But did he have strong competition? That's the thing. At least Angela Bassett had strong competition against her. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think that other than Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser against each other were strong in that competition. Mm-hmm. I don't think supporting actor had that much competition, though. At least you can make the case for Jamie Lee Curtis was great, but Angela Bassett should have won. But you, but it's not like she lost to someone that was not you know, deserving of it. Yeah. I can't yeah, tell yeah. you who would have taken home the supporting category, in, you know, in, in the men's division for a lack of better term. I, he swept, but was the competition there? I'll give you that one. But I think my biggest gripe with it is just that as far as the supporting actress category goes, they didn't award it based on 
this performance. Fair enough. Let's talk about the other earth-shattering news. And that was the drop of the Little Mermaid trailer. You saw it before I did. I was at work. I taped the Oscars. So I'm going to let you go first. Well, I was going to say, yeah, this was, I think, the first Oscars that we've never watched together because you were working. And my mind was completely changed by this trailer, which I will break down in a moment. But what was going through your head when I texted you and said, I have tears in my eyes. I'm completely on board now. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, yeah, I, I was kind of shocked at myself that it brought me to tears. I mean, a lot of that was just hearing Howard Ashman's words in the Part of Your World song over this trailer. But I think that this is also just a much better trailer than what we got in the initial teaser and they're two different things granted the teaser is just supposed to give you a little glimpse which is exactly what it did we barely got to see ariel in that first little teaser um but i think this speaks to a much larger issue of how important trailers are and i feel like in the days of social media people are forgetting that trailers are supposed to market films and i feel like in the world that we live in with franchise films and sequels, that is completely forgotten about because when you announce that you're doing a sequel or when you announce that you're doing a remake, there's just fanfare and outcry and people already know you're going to do it. So in their minds, they're already going to see it or they're not. And the trailers are still so important because I think in this case, not only did it completely changed my excitement level for this film this one actually determined whether or not I was going to go see it because we've been talking about it on the show quite a bit you know my issues were never with Ariel and I, I think if that's what people are still stuck on you really need a good long hard look in the mirror my issues were with the CGI because it just didn't look good and after Pinocchio I was like I don't know if I want to put myself through this on my favorite film and my favorite story. Um, so I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go see it in the theater. And I figured maybe down the line on Disney Plus we would watch and review it for the show. But I was very hesitant even about that, just based on the CGI. Um, here, some of the CGI doesn't look that great still. But what I love that they're showing us now, I, I wish they would have led with the shipwreck from the beginning. And that's when we got our first glimpse of Ariel instead of focusing so much on part of your world. I love that this feels very much like Pirates of the Caribbean period piece as far as Eric's shipwreck um, and his castle. Um, I feel like it's actually going to lean into a little bit of the darkness of the fairy tale a little bit more. Um, speaking of darkness, one of the things that doesn't look so great to me is the, some of these underwater shots look far too bright to buy into being in the depths of the ocean. Yeah. I realize you're probably going to do that for under the sea because that sea needs to pop, but 
it still does. There's going to be a fine line that they have to walk because this was something we also talked about when we reviewed Wakanda Forever. Ricardo brought it up that some of those Talokan uh, scenes were very, very dark where you almost couldn't see. And I completely agree with that. So they're going to have to be very careful how they balance that out. Um, but what I really loved about this trailer more than anything else was our first look at Ursula. Um, Melissa McCarthy totally changed my mind. I wasn't sure how she was going to do it, how she was going to portray it until these booking.com commercials. I had never even heard her sing. Uh, and from the little glimpse we got, I think that she's absolutely killing it. I love how they went for the practical effect with the tentacles and they're making them glow and they didn't steer into CGI for that. Um, so I, I think that there's still going to be a lot of polarizing elements as far as the CGI goes, but this was just such a much better trailer and I am so much more excited for this movie. I'm hoping that with the CGI, I mean, this is just a trailer. They're still working on the film. The film is still in post. So I'm hoping that they can fix some of the CGI issues in post. Yes, there are parts that look way too bright. Yes, part of your world needs to pop. But you, then you have to put it in a setting where it pops. It can't be in the same depths of the ocean where everything is so dark. Because then it's just, you know, you can't turn the lights on down there. Um it's different when you're doing hand-drawn animation. It's a cartoon, right? So right. take liberties, but only to a certain point. Melissa McCarthy looks great. Yeah, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean feel to it, outstanding. This, similar to you, flipped the script for me. Um, if I didn't, I didn't care for the trailer that much, it was okay. Didn't show us anything, but it's a trailer. Okay, you know, it's a teaser, fine. If this had been a lousy trailer, I probably would have not gone to see it. If the second trailer would have been a lousy trailer, I definitely would not have seen it. And you and I do not skip Disney films. We don't. We do not skip Disney films. But between being critical of the live-action remakes, and they're, they seemingly get worse and worse as they go on uh, without any reason behind it, uh, not loving the Peter Pan and Wendy trailer. Um, I I gave this one a very short leash. I would have waited until it came out on Disney Plus, but now I am I am excited. I'm more excited to see it because what I'm hoping is that we don't get like a second trailer that ends up being like, oh, we wasted the good surprise on you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you, I'm I'm more excited. Get me a good second trailer and I'm 100% on board. I'm like 90% there right now. The only things I am kind of bumping on, and I feel like this is a lot of people's issue, is Sebastian. Sebastian, I, I mean, Scuttle looks great. Scuttle looks like a real seagull. Sebastian doesn't really look like a crab. Not, not a real one, at least. And he doesn't look cartoony enough to be Sebastian. So I bump on that a little bit. Um, Javier Bardem looked really good, I yeah. think. Um, but yeah, just leaps and bounds better. That is two banger trailers that we've gotten in a row. Yeah, between, between that and, and Haunted, and Haunted Mansion. Mansion. We want to know what you have to say about the Little Mermaid trailer. Are you going to see it? Did you Were you more excited after this? Because I will tell you that I noticed 
not a lot of polarizing views on social media. More people than not very much in favor of this trailer, which in this day and age on the cesspool that is social media is an accomplishment. You can let us know on that same cesspool of social media, (laughs) Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to join us on that cesspool. I just gave you that social media. We're also on TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Uh, Be sure to- Speaking of cesspools, my God. Be sure to email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. In regards to anything, we love hearing from you. Be sure to like, uh, follow us on you and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show, it's going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>